Let's generate our motivation. And expand our mind to think of all the sentient beings. Or at least, if we can't get all of them, at least some of the ones, different realms, different places that we may know or not know. All of them wanting happiness, none of them wanting suffering. All of them being run by or operated by the self-grasping ignorance and the afflictions that it produces. And what's even more tragic is not even knowing that they're in samsara, not even knowing what their situation is. Just being born here and accepting it as it is and trying to be happy without really thinking about the meaning of their life or what it means to be in samsara, what it means to be controlled by ignorance. And yet, as human beings, we tend to be so full of pride that we're superior to all the animals where we have this great intelligence. And yet, so often, we're completely out to lunch, don't understand samsara, the four truths, or even we understand them, we're still out to lunch. It's very difficult to uh, make our mind and our actions correspond with the Dharma. So many old habits. And yet, we have this quite remarkable potential And if we exert even a tiny bit of effort, we can make progress, we can use that potential. And if we exert two tiny bits of effort, we can double that. So let's not see Dharma practice as hard. It's not hard. The afflictions are hard. But if we try, we can certainly progress on the path to full awakening. Let that be our motivation for sharing the teachings this evening.
Do you ever wonder when you take bugs outside what your previous relationship with those bugs was? Yeah. Who you were, who that bug was, what your connection was in the past. Yeah. And then to think, you know, we'll meet again in the future and who knows what forms we'll be in and how we'll connect then. That we can at least make an aspiration to be able to benefit that bug. And there's plenty of bugs <laughs> to practice with. And there's even a few human beings, which I don't know if they're more difficult or more e- or easier to practice with. <laughs> and how long are people human beings and how long are they bugs? Okay, so we're on page uh, 314, a little over halfway down, and we will finish the book this evening, hopefully. There's only a few more pages, uh, because next week on Friday, we will start volume three, Samsara, Nirvana, and Buddha Nature, and then go right into uh, starting the next day, next Saturday, on the course um, by that title. And so we'll really, uh, for those days, really delve into that book in a, in a much more focused way. Okay, so we were talking about karma and uh, the last section, the head heading was creating the causes for higher rebirth, liberation, and awakening. Okay, and so, uh, you know, really emphasizing the uh, practice of ethical conduct so that we can have a good rebirth, okay, and the practice of the um, other virtues you know, especially the, the six far-reaching practices, six perfections, to um, fill out the cooperative conditions of an upper rebirth, and then powerful dedication prayers uh, that in the past lives and now in this life for future lives that will direct how our karma will ripen. So, uh, you know, the most... Uh, important thing, you know, or the time, the thing more time sensitive is to get an upper rebirth so we can continue practicing. But when we dedicate, we try and dedicate for the awakening of all beings, because if you dedicate for that, then the things that are the causes for that are implicitly dedicated as well. But it never hurts to, you know, verbally or, in, you know, in your mind really say, you know, I want a precious human life, or I want to be born in Amitabha's pure land. Because um, I think the more we imprint that in the mind, then hopefully that will appear at the time of death. Okay, so uh, we'll keep reading here. It says, without living ethically and observing karma and its effects, a fortunate rebirth is not possible. 
Yeah, if that doesn't smack you in the head, yeah, it's like if we don't keep ethical conduct, there's not going to be a good rebirth, period. And you can't bargain with the Buddha. And it isn't the Buddha that's even causing this. This is just how cause and effect works in our own mind. Okay. Page 314. Yeah. A little bit more than halfway down. Okay, so the first Dalai Lama says, as it says in Aryadeva's The 400, by ethical conduct one goes to a high rebirth. By the view, one goes to the supreme state, meaning liberation and awakening. For the purpose of obtaining higher rebirth, ethical conduct is foremost. Actually, for obtaining liberation and full awakening, ethical conduct is also needed. Yeah, It's not that you just practice ethical conduct because you need a good rebirth, and then you forget ethical conduct after you got that rebirth, you know, because when you practice the bodhisattva path, when you practice the tantric path, there's different sets of precepts, but you still hold, you know, the pratimoksha precepts. So, you know, all, there's just all these different levels of ethical conduct that it's important to keep as we progress. To attain liberation, in addition to renunciation of samsara and the determination to attain nirvana, we must have the wisdom realizing emptiness. With renunciation and the aspiration for nirvana give us the motivation to practice the path of cleansing the mind of ignorance, which is the root of samsara. The wisdom realizing emptiness is the actual realization that overcomes ignorance. So renunciation is important because it what it is what motivates us to try and get out of samsara and to try and realize the wisdom real, uh, realizing emptiness to actualize that wisdom. Yeah. So some people don't like meditating on the the dukkha, the suffering of of samsara. Uh, and, you know, renunciation, you know, you have to give up all your attachment to sense pleasure. Yeah. And, oh, who wants to do that? I like my sense pleasure. Okay. But I also want to be a Dharma practitioner. Yeah. So I'll kind of pick and choose, you know, what I do. And uh, somehow I'll, I'll pull it off. Yeah. Uh, be careful of that way of thinking. <laughs> Okay, it um, it isn't, it, you know, we, we so often think that, like, we think in terms of people, you know, like somebody's going to judge us, somebody's going to determine our, our next rebirth. So if we can, like, please that person, pull it off somehow, then, uh, you know, we'll come out on top. But it's not a question of pleasing anybody. You know, this is just a system of cause and effect. And either we create the causes or we don't create the causes. Yeah, so it's, it's um, we have to adjust our way of thinking, you know, and see that if we want something, we have to put some energy 
into creating the causes. And, you know, if we're thinking, oh, I don't want to meditate on the suffering of the lower realms. I don't want to meditate on the six, you know, faults of samsara and the, the three sufferings and the eight sufferings of human beings. So many lists of unpleasant things I have to meditate on to generate renunciation. Uh, this makes me depressed. Actually, it shouldn't make us depressed. If we're meditating properly, it should make our minds sober, and we should see that there is a way out. If there's no way out of samsara, then, yeah, of course, meditating on that would make us depressed. But there is a way out of samsara. So you don't just stop at the first true two truths, true dukkha and true cause. You have to remember there's true cessation and true path as well. Okay? And then uh, you see when, when you do the meditations to, uh, you know, on, on true dukkha and true cause, it makes your mind, it lowers the energy, you know. It makes you much more um, careful, much more aware, much more heedful of your actions uh, because you really want to steer your life and your future lives in a certain direction. You know, and you don't want to keep going around and around on the merry-go-round. Yeah. So, yeah. When you think, you know, if you're riding a merry-go-round all day and all night, you're sick to your stomach. When you think about getting off that merry-go-round, does it make your mind happy? Yeah. So when you renounce the merry-go-round, it's like, you don't get depressed. It's like, now I'm going to go towards happiness. Okay. The Buddha's teachings describe how to cultivate renunciation and wisdom realizing emptiness. We should examine if other paths contain these teachings. Okay? So if you're trying to figure out what religion to follow or what philosophy to follow, see if they have te the teachings on emptiness or not. If they do, that path can lead you to liberation. If they don't, then you won't be liberated by following that path. To attain Buddhahood, two critical factors are required, bodhicitta and the wisdom realizing emptiness. As above, the wisdom realizing emptiness is necessary to cleanse the mind of all ignorance, which keeps us bound in cyclic existence, and its latencies, which inhibit the mind from knowing all existence. Bodhicitta gives us the aspiration and energy to create the vast merit necessary to attain full awakening. Here, too, the Buddha Dharma teaches us how to cultivate these two factors, and we need to examine if other paths also contain these teachings. Okay, so there's a, a whole section here where we really compare, um, you know, the four truths as they're described by the Buddha and the four truths as they're described by other religions and philosophies. You know, so what is our situation? What is its cause? Yeah. 
is is there a remedy? Is there a state of freedom? And if so, what is the path? And then you can see each religion, uh, each philosophy has its own version of what those are. Yeah. And so when you really check it, check them out deeply, and when you understand the Buddhist um, four four truths, then you really see how it's uh, it's that explanation is really superior to all other paths. And you do this just by thinking about it and seeing that things make sense as the Buddha described them. Okay. When we speak of higher spiritual goals, such as liberation and awakening, the meaning of the word dharma becomes more specific. It must be the teachings and the path that lead to nirvana and awakening. In this context, actions motivated by attachment to rebirth and cyclic existence and actions done without the correct understanding of emptiness are not suitable. Okay, so, um, you know, usually the line differentiating worldly practice and dharma practice is whether the eight worldly concerns are present or not. And in that version, if you have an aspiration for a good future life, that that mind uh, is a dharma mind and you have a dharma aspiration. Here, you know, when we're thinking about liberation and awakening, uh, dharma goes up a step, the meaning of dharma. And it's it's not just... Uh, aspiring for a good rebirth, it's aspiring freedom from the whole merry-go-round and aspiring to be free from the merry-go-round so you can benefit sentient beings. The attainment of full awakening requires the bodhicitta motivation. So no bodhicitta, no full awakening. After all, how could there be a Buddha who lacks compassion and the altruistic intention? I mean, if you think about it, you know, how can somebody become an awakened being but cherish themselves before everybody else and lack compassion for others? That's just not going to work. Yeah? Okay. Okay. In, Bo- in the Bodhisattva grounds, the Bodhisattva Bhuma, Bhumi, a Sangha says that someone who has fully dedicated his or her body, speech, and mind for the welfare of sentient beings continuously holds the thought to do all actions totally for the benefit of sentient beings. Okay, so that's the demarcation of becoming a Bodhisattva. Yeah, we're kind of, you know, bodhisattva wannabes, at least I am, you know? And so you look at that and you say, wow, you know, that sounds fantastic. I want to go in that direction and it's going to take me some time, but, you know, that's that's the direction I want to go in, okay? And then, you know, we try and uh, even though, you know, you know, I'm speaking for myself here. You know, I'm not at the level where I can take the actual bodhisattva vows because even though I recite the same prayer, 
as the bodhisattvas do. It, I'm, I'm actually having a similitude of the bodhisattva vow. Okay. So, but even doing that and practicing that and reciting those kinds of verses again and again and again, it puts that imprint in our mind. It makes, makes it stronger. Yeah. Before uh, I had my hip surgery, you know, you're in this room and you have to wash yourself with all these, you know, things. They want every little bit of dirt and, and bacteria off of, you, off of you. And, you know, you out, you're doing all these things. So I did that. And then, uh, and then I wanted to read, uh, Vasubandhu's Ten Aspirations. Yeah. And they were, they were hurrying me, remember? Uh, you know, come on. Uh, you know, we, we want to start cutting. And <laughs> it's like, hold on. You know, I, I just have to finish reading this prayer. It's not very long, but I felt like I, before I went under the anesthesia, I had to, remind myself of, of those verses. Uh, okay. Um, with such an intention of bodhicitta, okay, uh, a person has no fault or infraction in the bodhisattva training and creates great virtue. Okay, so here's what Shantideva says. And for those who have perfectly seized this mind with the thought never to turn away from totally liberating the infinite forms of life. I mean, just that verse, you can see how vast it is. Never turn away infinite forms of life. Okay, totally liberate. You know, they're not messing around. From that time hence, even when asleep or unconcerned, a force of merit equal to the sky will perpetually ensue. Okay, so whatever we're doing, if we have that bodhisattva intention, even if it's the contrived, fabricated one, it's still having a very profound impact on our mind. Kedrup, one of Tsongkhapa's foremost disciples, once praised Tsongkhapa, saying, your simple act of breathing accumulates enormous virtue. We go, huh? Just breathing? So His Holiness says, I don't think this means that Tsongkhapa has bodhicitta manifest each time, uh, it manifests in his mind each time he breathes, thinking, I inhale to become a Buddha for the benefit of all sentient beings. I exhale in order to become a Buddha for the benefit of all sentient beings. It, it doesn't mean that, okay? Rather, all of his actions, including eating, sleeping, and so on, are motivated by or associated with powerful bodhicitta. Okay. And so Nagarjuna says... Like the earth, water, wind, and fire, medicinal herbs, and the trees in the wilderness, may I always freely be an object of enjoyment by all beings as they wish. When we were in India, you remember, uh, and His Holiness gave the Peldan Lamo uh, initiation, you didn't go, you went. 
Yeah, he he gave us six verses to recite every day as the commitment, and this was one of them. Yeah, there were three verses on bodhicitta, three verses on emptiness. If someone conjoins bodhicitta with the wisdom directly realizing emptiness, he or she is on the path to fulfilling the collections of merit and wisdom and becoming a Buddha. Okay, so that's really taking the whole teachings on karma and seeing where it will take you when you follow cause and effect. The next section is a deeper perspective on causality. Karma and its uh, effects is sometimes taught in simple terms to new audiences in order to communicate the importance of ethical conduct. As a result, some people may think about karma and its effects in a very simplistic way, as in, I hit you this life and you will hit me in the next life. Okay, kind of Sunday school version of karma, yeah, to teach people don't hit anybody. As we've seen in this whole, the last few chapters about karma, the effect of an action is dependent on many conditions and factors. In this life, it is important to view karma and its effects within the broader perspective of dependent arising and emptiness. Okay, so we don't just think, you know, I hit you, you're going to hit me, but we really think about, you know, how karma is created dependent on many factors. There's the four factors. It produces, you know, different kinds of results depending on other conditions that happen to be ready, you know, ripening at that time. It can be influenced by prayers, by dedications. Uh, it can be influenced by, um, you know, getting angry and having wrong views or by purification. So, you know, karma isn't some truly existing concrete thing. You know, it's, it's, it's malleable and depends on many, many factors. So many that we really, as living, you know, ordinary beings, there's no way we can really even contemplate the myriad factors that are, are, are there. Dependent arising is the innermost treasure of the Buddhist teaching. I remember um, many years ago, somebody asked His Holiness if, uh, the Buddha had a slogan, you know, to sum up everything. What would he say? And he said, dependent arising. And then somebody made little buttons, you know, that said, you know, dependent arising that several people were wearing. Okay. But here he's saying it's the innermost treasure of the Buddha's teachings. Yeah. By understanding it, practitioners are able to gradually accomplish their temporary and or temporal and ultimate aims. Happiness in samsara, including higher rebirth, comes about by understanding the dependent arising of karma and its effects. This understanding forms the basis for adopting the ethical conduct of restraining from destructive actions and engaging in constructive ones. And uh, His Holiness repeatedly says that in order to really um, 
be prepared to meditate on emptiness, we have to have a very uh, strong understanding of karma and its effects and conviction in that, you know, because uh, without understanding causality, it is very easy when you do the analysis to try and find how the I exists to conclude that because you can't find it, nothing exists, and then you fall to the extreme of nihilism. But if you have an understanding of dependent arising, then that will prevent you from falling to nihilism because you will see that emptiness does not negate cause and effect. It doesn't negate the functioning of, uh, you know, causal dependence. Okay, so that's why it, it uh, not only forms the basis for abandoning what we're supposed to abandon and practice what to abandon, what to practice, but also for, you know, gaining the higher realizations. Yeah. Because especially in Tantra, you know, we hear people totally misunderstand Tantra and say, oh, everything is non-dual, there's no good, there's no bad. Yeah, you don't create karma anymore because you've realized emptiness, and so it really doesn't matter what you do. And the people who say this haven't realized emptiness and uh, then start doing whatever they want, thinking that because they can say those words that um, karma is not going to operate for them. And that becomes very dangerous. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sometimes people, they, they get a, a tinge of kind of arrogance, you know. I'm a tantra practitioner, you know. I visualize myself as this deity or that deity, and um, you know, I'm doing completion stage practice. You know, watching, watching my breath go here and there, and and you know, and they start thinking that that they're really advanced uh, when they aren't, and then say things like this. But then the, the masters, when they teach, uh, you know, when you're really a high, uh, highly advanced or highly realized practitioner on the completion stage, they say, uh, okay, if you can look out there and there's an apple tree, and without going there and without any kind of, you know, modern technology, you can make an apple fall off that tree, and then by the power of your mind, you can make it go up and reattach to the tree. Then you have some realizations. Yeah. But if you can't do that, then, yeah, then chill out and do your practice. Okay. However, understanding dependent arising in terms of karma and its effects, or causal dependence in general, is not the complete understanding of dependent arising. 
animals also understand cause and effect to some extent. Yeah, Maitri is amazing. When she hears the sound, even she's downstairs. This cat is amazing. There's the, the little um, cheese things, yeah, the string cheese bag. When she hears me open it and the plastic moving, I haven't even taken the thing out. She runs up that stairs, okay? She knows cause and effect. That sound means I'm eating something delicious, and if she comes there, I'll let her lick the wrapper. <laughs> I don't give it to her because milk products aren't good for kitties, but she can lick the wrapper, which she loves. Okay. <laughs> So, uh, you know, animals understand it. If we investigate the meaning of causal dependence further, how do we account for the fact that a cause produces an effect? Why is one event dependent on certain other specific events and not on others? So why do certain causes produce certain effects and not other effects? And why are why do effects come from causes to start with? Okay. So this points to a deeper way to understand cause and effect. If cause and effect existed inherently, they would have a fixed essence. They would be self-enclosed entities that could not interact with other things, okay? Because remember, inherent existence means something is independent from all other factors. So if a seed were inherently existent, it could not be affected by water and fertilizer and heat and being planted in the ground it wouldn't depend on any of those factors, okay? And wouldn't even depend on its own, you know, um, RNA, do plants have DNA? Yeah, DNA and RNA, okay. So it wouldn't even depend on that, yeah? And any kind of seed could produce any kind of plant. Everything would be totally random, yeah? And so if the seed produced something, it would just keep on producing it without ever stopping because it wouldn't depend on the conditions being there and the absence of the conditions stopping it from being able to sprout. Or if it existed inherently, it could never sprout because it wouldn't be influenced by the conditions that would make it sprout. Okay. So you're really stuck if causes and effects are and exist inherently with some kind of, you know, their own essence in them, okay? For cause and effect to function, things must be interrelated, and thus the very nature of things must be dependent. Having the nature of dependence, one thing can produce another, and a cause and its effect are related. Yeah, because again, if they were 
if uh, they were inherently existent, then they would be totally unrelated. Yeah, and any uh, any cause could produce, you know, any any effect. It'd be completely complete chaos, actually. Causes do not depend on their effects in a temporal sense. We know that causes precede the effects that depend on them. But they do depend on effects in terms of their identity. Okay, so we're moving from causal dependence here into um, another kind of dependence. Yeah. Without there being a potential effect, something cannot be identified as a cause. The very identity of something as a cause depends on its effects. Cause and effect are defined in terms of each other. So what this means is, is if you have a seed there, okay, it's not a seed from its own side. Yeah, we have a definition of what a seed is, you know. It's something that can produce a plant. So, I mean, that's a coarse, general, you know, definition. I'm sure there's a more specific one, okay? But that thing becomes called, it becomes a seed because it has the potential to produce the sprout and the plant. If it didn't have that potential, it could not be identified as a seed, okay? So the cause being identified as a cause depends on it having the potential to produce a result, okay? So when we think in terms of causal dependence, the cause produces the effect, and the effect is dependent on the cause. When we're talking about this kind of mutual dependence, the cause and effect are related to each other. They're, they don't cause each other. The effect does not cause the cause, but they are identified as a cause and as an effect because those two things are related to each other. Okay, is this clear? When you think about, so this is very interesting when you can really sit and think about this a lot, that all the relationships we have are postulated in dependence on somebody else. You know, you're a parent or a child or a brother or sister or a second cousin four times removed or a niece or a nephew, an aunt or an uncle. Depending on other people, yeah, that's how you become that. And if, it, this is very good for if you tend to, to uh, take pride in your social status or your career, you know, I'm a, you know, whatever it is, I'm an economist, yeah, I understand all these complicated things, what in the world is a hedge fund, 
I know what hedges are, you know, they, they're plants that grow, but why would you have a fund? You know, so, the, you know, I'm an economist, I know what a hedge fund is, and I know what a, you know, I don't know, they have all these complicated things now. Um, but why are you an economist? Are you inherently an economist? You know, it's only because there happens to be a, an economy and because there happens to be all these different kind of banking and financial, you know, names and, and accounts and things like that. Yeah. And you're only important as an economist because other people think you're, an, you're important. Yeah? If nobody thought economists were important, you are not important. <laughs> yeah? So your social status, you know, your whole image, your whole identity of yourself, you know, is dependent not only on other people, but on the social structure around us. And where did that social structure come from? Is it inherently existent? Is capitalism, solid capitalism and socialism, solid socialism? No, they're things that human minds made up. We made up these systems. Yeah, they're completely dependent on our mind. They have no essence or meaning, you know, from their own side at all. Just depends on the meaning we, we give them. I was telling people, you know, because I've been, part of my job at the Abbey is to deal with finan finances and things like that, and to figure out, you know, how how to protect the donations we receive before we build the, the Buddha Hall. And I look, and, you know, there's like all these numbers and money, that, you know, you move money from one account to the other, you don't move anything. There's nothing that you move. You open a bank account, there's nothing that you put in it. Is there? You know, what happens is you get a little book with some numbers in it. Yeah. So I'm sitting here and it's like I've never had much money and now I'm working with these big sums of money and it doesn't mean anything to me. You know, because it's all just numbers on a piece of paper. And we gave meaning to those numbers on the piece of paper. And there isn't even, you don't even trade paper anymore. You know, okay, maybe you get a check and you deposit a check, you know. But basically, you can just move things around from, you know, nowadays, I guess people have their cell phone. You just put a, your cell phone down and you buy your groceries. You don't even give the cashier anything and you get a bag of groceries. Yeah, and you go to buy a car and you give that people person a piece of plastic for a few minutes and you can drive a car home. When you think about it, it's all completely crazy, isn't it? But we imbue it with meaning. 
And we give so much meaning to these things. You know, when you look at your bank statement, it isn't the first number that's important. What's important is how many zeros follow that first number. You want zeros. Yeah, think about it. You want zeros. You know, you can have a five or a nine, but if it only has one zero after it, yeah. But if you have a one and you have six zeros after it, yeah. But when you think about it, it's just, we just invented this whole thing and then we worry about it. Yeah, we worry, oh, do I have enough money? But where's the money that you have? doesn't matter whether we're on the gold standard or not. It's not because it's not like people lug around gold to prove that they're rich. Yeah, it's just squiggles on a piece of paper. When you think about it, isn't it? Now, some people are looking like you're absolutely nuts, you know. This is important. But think about what it really is, you know. And you work so hard to get a diploma or a certificate. And, you know, and then, you know, especially the ones with the kind of gold starry things that are, that are on it and that you put in a nice frame and you hang on the wall and your parents look at it and go, Oh, my son, my daughter, they're wonderful, you know. And then your parents can brag about you to all their friends because you have a piece of paper. Yeah, that piece of paper is supposed to indicate that you know something. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about you. But when I think of what I graduated in, you know, if you gave me a test now on Russian history, I would fail it. Yet, there's a diploma somewhere. My parents have it. I have no idea where it is. Oh, my parents are dead. They don't have it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know what happened to my diploma after my parents died, <laughs> you know. So, yeah. But when you, you think about these things, you know, just how our mind creates stuff, and then we take ourselves so seriously. Yeah? I am a this, and that person is a that. And, it, you know, it's so totally ridiculous. Okay. No, I'm not saying that those things are meaningless. They have meaning, but they're, me they're empty of their meaning. Their meaning exists because we've given them meaning. So we follow laws and we, you know, move our money from here to there, or maybe you don't have money and, you know, you draw in a few extra zeros when you can. Um, but, you know, we shouldn't take these things so seriously as if they have, you know, 
really profound impact on our value as a human being. Yeah. We follow them. They're conventions. We follow the conventions. Yeah, you don't walk into a grocery store and take a bunch of food and walk out and say, uh, here's a piece of paper with some squiggles, um, you know, because if you don't have the right squiggles, um, you know, they're not going to let you walk out with the groceries. So, you know, we follow conventions, but when you think about the conventions, they're just, I mean, they're just totally things we made up. So if you're taking yourself real seriously, you may feel a little bit deflated, yeah? But if you don't take yourself so seriously, you can laugh about all of this, yeah? And laughing is really the only way, <laughs> you know, in samsara to survive, I think. Okay. So the very identity of something as a cause depends on its effect. Cause and effect are defined in terms of each other. Because they are mutually dependent, they do not possess an inherent essence. They exist in dependence on term and concept. They exist by dependent designation. If they had any findable nature, they could not be related as cause and effect, nor could their identity be mutually defined in terms of each other. Okay. So when you think of, uh, you know, all these things that you attribute to yourself or attribute to somebody else, okay, they're things that are designated. They're not things that are there solid in the person. They're things that are designated in relation to other things. They're not just designated because of they have such some inherent essence. If you think that, you're a Svatantraka Madhyamaka, okay? Because they say things have an inherent existence, but they're also designated. The prasangikas say, when you look, what are you going to point to as their inherent essence? Yeah, there's nothing you can point to. It's all made up by mind. Yeah, but then the Svatantrikas say, no, there has to be something in the object. Otherwise, you could call anything anything. And prasangikas say, try it. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't work. Yeah, we still have to follow conventions, but the conventions are not inherently existent. I like when I, I introduce people to, to talking about emptiness, I like to talk about manners first, you know, because we think manners are inherently existent. And somebody who doesn't follow manners is a rude, just disgusting, inconsiderate person. Okay. But who made up what is polite and what is not polite? Okay. In Tibet, 
When you're introduced to somebody that you respect, you show respect by sticking out your tongue. Like that. Also. Also. Okay? So if you have a yellow crud on your tongue, everybody sees it. Okay? It indicates that you are not a threat. It's like shaking hands. You shake with your right hand to show you don't have a gun in it. You stick out your tongue to show that you're not using some mantra to, to do something to somebody. Okay? When there are spirits around and you want to scare the spirits away, you clap your hands. Okay? You clap as loud as you can. So, uh, in, when young husbandsmen went, marched with his British trips, troops <laughs> on his trip, <laughs> into Tibet in 1906 or something around there. And the Tibetans were lined up on the street like this. The British thought that they were so happy to see them come and occupy their capital, that they were applauding. Actually, the Tibetans were trying to scare away the white ghosts. Yeah. When the Tibetans did stick their tongue out, the British thought they were being very rude. Actually, they were being polite. Yeah? So it's, uh, you know, what we call polite and not polite is just totally made up by the culture. Yeah? Yeah? In Tibetan culture, when somebody offers you more food, you're supposed to say no. Maybe on the third time they ask, then you can say yes to the food or the tea. But <laughs> Westerners, if we offer somebody food and the person says no, we figure they mean no and we don't offer again. So many of the Tibetan monks, before they come to the West, their friends who have been to the West, counsel them. If they offer you tea or food and you want it, say yes. Because if you say no to be polite as a Tibetan, they won't give you anything. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, again, just what, what we imagine, you know, things... And, and when you live in other cultures, this really comes home, you know. And what other culture values? Yeah. You know, in Asia, uh, you know, taking care of your parents, the Confucian ethic of being a, a good child, the filial piety, you know, is very held, you know, and it's uh, very highly. In our country... Well, you do what you want until you have to take care of them. You know? It's, we don't have that same idea of filial piety, filial piety. We don't have the idea that if we misbehave, it reflects badly on our family. We think it only affects badly on us. In Asia, it affects your whole family. Yeah. Here, people you know, don't think about that so much. Uh -huh. 
So, you know, there's different ways of forming, even of, of forming the identity of I, what you mean by I. Yeah, it's different in different cultures. Some cultures, your sense of I is much more communal because you exist within a family, within a society, within a clan or whatever. In the West, you're an independent individual. Yeah. So you do what you want, but also, you know, don't count on anybody necessarily to help you. So, uh, yeah, so just how, how the I, the sense of I is constructed in different cultures, yeah, varies. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, so now, now I gotta, let me see, we're almost at the end. Okay, so I, I have time to go off on this tangent. Okay, so I think I've told you before that I, well, uh, you know, a couple of times, two, three years ago, gave talks at different places. And uh, people, when they asked me about identities, and I started talking about how identities, our identity is I'm a this, I'm a that, depending our racial identity, ethic, ethnic identity, religious, gender, you know, all these identities, nationality, socioeconomic class, all these identities, I started talking about them as being, you know, made up by our mind and being empty. And um, one time I I was talking about this at a place where they had invited me to talk about women in Buddhism. And... uh, and what I did is I gave a talk uh, dissecting, you know, what women, you know, what it meant, the word woman meant in American and, you know, all the Buddhism, being Buddhist and everything like that. And uh, when the people asked me, one of the people asked me during the Q&A session, uh, who do you want to be like? And I said, the Dalai Lama. I want to be like His Holiness. He's my teacher. And they were so disappointed. They wanted me to say Tara or Vajrayogini. And some of the people were really, they were not happy with that talk at all because I was dissecting identities. And um, uh we recently received an email from somebody who was at the talk saying, I wonder, you know, how it is still happening at the, at the Abbey. Are you still, uh, you know, we were discussing about being too quick to dismiss identities in favor of ultimate emptiness. You know, kind of asking our, you know, hey, that lady at the front of the room, is she still talking like that? You know, it was much more polite. But, you know, wondering about that. And it was funny because I, uh, not funny, haha, but um, I didn't feel when I was giving that talk like I was discounting uh, relative identities. You know, I mean, if you want me to talk about women in Buddhism, yes, men and women exist. And you have to know which bathroom to go into. 
And, you know, now people are making laws about which bathroom you can go into. And nobody before ever even cared about what, what bathroom trans people went into. Now it's a big thing. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I don't think it's an either or thing. If you completely discount conventional identities, you're not going to be able to function in the world. Okay, you're going to go into the wrong bathroom. You're going to open your mouth and say something that's going to offend somebody. Yeah. Um, but if you take everything so seriously, then you become very easily offended because whatever, whatever anybody says or does, you have a notion of your identity and how people should treat you because of that. And if they don't treat you that way, then you're offended, you're upset. Okay. So it's not an either or thing. Yeah. I think we need to be able to hold both of them. But um, what I see happening in society now is this whole, uh, people are just making their identity so strong that, uh, that it's becoming like things can't function. You know, if you look in Congress, you're a Republican or you're a Democrat. And now it's like, forget what you believe, forget the people that you represent. If you're a Republican, you vote this way. If you're a Democrat, you vote that way. If you're incredibly brave, you may vote your conscience. But that's only for people who are very, who are incredibly brave if they think that the other side has the best policy. Yeah. But if you're interested in pleasing the leaders of your party and you want to get reelected, re because that's the most important thing is to get reelected, then you vote according to how people expect you to vote, not what you uh, think is the best thing for the country. Yeah. So, you know, grasping on to, to these identities like that, it really causes so much suffering. Yeah. And, um, you know, people are offended by things that the other person had no intention to offend them about. Okay. And, uh, and then, you know, this one's offended because of that one. And then when this one's offended because this one, you know, said some kind of remark that this one finds bad, then this one gets gets angry. Then this one gets offended because that one got angry when they said an innocent thing. And then you have two upset people who are blaming each other for pulling the whatever card it is that, you know the race card, the religion card, the gender card, the nationality card, whatever it is, okay? And uh, I just think it's kind of gone a little bit too far, yeah? Yes, we need to be aware of racial discrimination and institu structural institutional racism. But I don't know about you guys. I mean, we've all been training our minds to think like the, the Buddha has taught us. Yeah, does the Buddha teach us to grasp our identities strongly and to be offended? 
No, the Buddha teaches us, yeah, to let go of the self-centered thought, to see things, you know, as as created by the mind. Yeah, to to um, be patient and tolerant with other people. Okay. So, uh, yeah, so when I talked at Harvard one time, oh, there was some of those undergraduates, they were got so mad at me, you know, because, I mean, I tried to explain, you know, I've been trying to train my mind to see all sentient beings as equal in wanting happiness and not wanting suffering and looking into people's hearts and seeing that that's the most important thing to know about any living being. Yeah, their race, their age, their health, all that other stuff is not important. You know, when we really understand that everybody wants happiness and doesn't want suffering, and that different things give them happiness and different things give them suffering, then you can really, you connect, you can connect from the heart with other living beings. Yeah. But for these Harvard students, that was whitewashing. Yeah, that was whitewashing differences and not being sensitive. And it was very, very strange for me. Yeah. So it would be interesting if a Buddha appeared and those students talked to the Buddha or the Buddha, you know, gave a lecture to see if, if how the students would change. Yeah. Anyway, I'm sure what I said now has offended other people. But, uh, you know, have mouth will offend. <laughs> and, it, uh, and together with that is have mind will be offended. Okay. Okay, in this way, understanding dependent arising in terms of cause and effect leads to the deeper understanding of phenomena as empty of inherent existence and to the understanding that phenomena are mutually dependent and exist by dependent designation without their own nature. Inherent nature. Comprehending this will enable us to counteract ignorance and attain liberation. Okay, then uh, the conclusion for the path of the initial level practitioner. So this completes the topics of the path in common with the initial level practitioner. As a preliminary, notice in the Lamrim it has uh, refuge for initial level. Refuge is coming later. Yeah. As a preliminary to the path in, in common with the middle level practitioner and the path of the advanced practitioner, it cannot be omitted, the, the initial path cannot be omitted or ignored. This practice is said to be in common with the initial level practitioner in that we do not seek good rebirths as an end to themselves. Okay. We seek it's in common with the initial level because we seek a good rebirth. 
That makes us in common with it, but we are not strictly an initial level practitioner because we don't see a good rebirth as an end to itself. There's a higher motivation in there. So that's why you have in common with uh, regarding the uh, initial level practitioner and the medium level practitioner. Okay, those paths are all in common. Yeah. Our final aim is full awakening. We keep this bodhicitta motivation in mind from the first step on the path until the last. Cherish your, special, your precious human life and the possibilities it grants you. And be aware that it is hard to obtain and does not last long. Train yourself to catch your proclivities for the eight worldly concerns and use awareness of your mortality to make wise choices about how to use your time and resources. Contemplate karmic causality to encourage yourself to create the causes for happiness and abandon the causes for suffering. By properly meditating on these topics and integrating them into your life, you will create a strong foundation for the practices to come and make your life meaningful. Okay, now the Tibetans have a habit of when you finish a text, you start over at the beginning, like you're teaching it again, and the idea is that you're starting it again and you're not finishing it, so then you have to meet together again at a later time. So I'll just read a little bit from the preface. Uh, no, I'll start a little bit from the introduction by His Holiness and then a little bit from uh, chapter one, okay? So His Holiness says, over the centuries, Buddhism has made a powerful and valuable contribution to our human culture. Interesting, human culture. He doesn't say Tibetan culture, Indian culture, Romanian culture, Hungarian culture, West African culture. He says human culture. When speaking of the contribution of the Nalanda tradition in particular, I place its contents in three categories. Buddhist science, philosophy, and religion. Buddhist science includes discussion of the nature of the external world and the subject, the mind that cognizes it, as well as how the mind engages its objects through sensory and mental cognizers and through conceptual and non-conceptual consciousnesses. Buddhist science all also discusses how the mind engages with objects by employing reasoning that helps establish facts about the world. Okay. Then uh, he says, Buddhist philosophy includes discussion about the conventional and ultimate modes of existence of persons and phenomena, the four seals, indicating a philosophy as Buddhist, the two truths, and emptiness and dependent arising. Okay. 
Okay, so Buddhist science, I'm skipping here, Buddhist science and philosophy can be studied by all. However, Buddhist religion is for Buddhists and those interested in it. We respect each individual's choice regarding religion. Okay, so philosophy and science, everybody can learn from it. Buddhist religion, just the Buddhists do it. So you can learn, you know, the philosophy and the science, all about epistemology and ontology and so on, without becoming a Buddhist. Okay, and then the first chapter is on the four seals. Look at His Holiness. What does He give you? The very first chapter, the four seals. Yeah. The issue of distinguishing Buddhists from non-Buddhists existed in olden times as it does now. In ancient India, this was usually done on the basis of philosophical views regarding the nature of the self and phenomena. A convenient and concise way to delineate Buddhist views is according to the four seals as found in the King of Concentration Sutra. People accept the four seals uh, people accepting the four seals are considered Buddhist by view. Those accepting the three jewels as their ultimate source of refuge are considered Buddhist by conduct. Okay. The four seals are, one, all conditioned phenomena, phenomena are transient. Two, all polluted phenomena are dukkha or unsatisfactory in nature. Three, all phenomena are empty and selfless. And four, nirvana is true peace. And all the rest takes volumes and volumes and volumes to explain these four. Okay, so we have a little time for questions and maybe answers. Okay, someone is asking, um, during a Q&A this week, when asked why there are more female religious practitioners than males, the Dalai Lama said something to the effect of, it's because women are more accustomed to relying on others. So they're wondering if you um, heard this response, and if so, can you please unpack the comment? No, where did he say this? I've never heard him say that. It must have been one of the live stream teachings he did this week in a Q&A. Huh. I don't know. That's the first time I've heard him say that. So I, I really can't explain it. Oh, this is going back to um, the lower realms. And I used <laughs> to sort of console myself by thinking, well, you know, the karma there will eventually run out and then you sort of get out of there. Mm -hmm. But then you were talking about gloomy karma with gloomy fruition mm -hmm. and just thinking more deeply about the fact that in a hell realm, how in the world are you going to, you can't create virtue. Mm. You're experiencing constant pain and suffering. And so is it just the case that at some point from a previous life, a Buddha has made a connection with you and in a previous life you made requests? Mm. Or in a previous life you created a lot of good karma. But what happened at the end of your life, right before you were born in the hell realm, you had uh, 
tremendous anger, let's say, or resentment, that made the negative karma to be born in the hell realm ripen. But the po- all the other positive karma that you created in that life and previous lives is still in the mind stream and it can ripen later. But you're constantly creating non-virtue in a hell realm, right? Yeah, but you're you're... In the hell realms only as long as that particular karma to be in the hell realms and it, while it still exists, when it ex- exhausts, then you die from the hell realms. If you're reborn there again another time, it's because of a different karma. So even though you're creating all of this new non-virtue, that will happen in a future life? Yeah. Yeah, unless, you know, for some reason or something, it just, it ripens, a new negative karma ripens after that. You know, and you're born, you have two consecutive rebirths in the hell. But, you know, that's not a given. You you know, we go up and down and up and down all the time. Someone is asking that um, when we practice visualizations, where we visualize ourselves as deities. Mm-hmm. These deities have um, defined sexes, like Tara is female, Chemrezi is male. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder what the purpose is of the deities having different sexes. Meditate on them, and maybe you'll find out through your meditation. Because each form, you know, gives you, affects you in a different way. The colors of the deities affects you in a different way. Their no, the number of arms and legs they have, their their posture, all these things are representative and they affect our mind in different ways. So, uh, you know, visualize Chenrezig, visualize Tara, see, you know, what the difference and how they affect you are is. When uh, I must say that when I meditate on Chenrezi, I don't think of Chenrezi as male. To me, Chenrezi is very androgynous. Yeah, but um, yeah, just see see through your own experience. Yeah. Another person is asking um, whether mental consciousness. And ethical restraints, are they the same thing, or whether they depend on each other? Mental consciousness perceives many, many, many different uh, objects, okay? Ethical restraint is, um, you know, it's probably an intention in the mind to keep ethical restraint. And ethical restraint could also describe your physical and verbal actions, Okay. Another person is asking, um, does, um, is someone able to create positive potential or merit in the lower realms or other realms aside from the human realm, or are they not able to do that at all? Um, it depends on the rebirth that they that they have. You know, when what is it, dolphins? They appear to be quite compassionate to other living beings. Um, you know, so it could be that, you know, they create some merit like that. Um, <laughs> I saw this, this thing of a, 
<laughs> so funny, of a mama bear in Yosemite or somewhere crossing a road and the traffic is lined up that way and it's lined up that way and she has four cubs and she's crossing the road and all the little cubs are supposed to follow behind mama. But you know little kids, they all run in their own directions. And this mama bear, you know, she was going back and, you know, picking up her cubs by the nap of their neck and carrying them across and carrying that one and that one and this one ran back and she had to go like this. You know, that mama, she loved her cubs. She was not gonna let them be exposed to danger, you know, and forget the fact that traffic was, was blocked, okay? So I think, you know, she had some kind of kind, compassionate feeling wanting those cubs to be safe. Huh? Um, so, I, you know, they say it's difficult to create virtue in the lower realms, but I wouldn't say it's impossible. Also, another way that you create virtue is by having contact with, um, with holy objects. So that's why we the, take the cats around, they circumambulate the Buddha in the garden. You know, why we were inviting, we have all of our kitties, now they, they're in the other building, the teachings are in one building, they aren't in that same building, but before they were, so they listened to teachings. Some people have sent us pictures. We have, there's a great picture on our website, somebody with a parrot is, sitting, listening, and there's a picture of the our, our class in the background, and somebody else with their dog on the floor and the computer, you know, with the picture in the background. So, you know, they hear the sound of the Dharma, they hear the teachings, um, you know, they see altars, they hear if you say your prayers out loud or mantras out loud, okay? So by the, that's called uh, virtue by power of the object. Okay, then, Foundation of Buddha's Practice, Volume 2 in the Library of Wisdom and Compassion is complete. Now we need to go back and really study and meditate on it. Okay, and next week we will start Volume 3. And Volume 6 is coming out in May. So... It'll take us a while to get to volume six. 